Chapters 15 and 16 of The Interrupted Kiss by Richard Marsh. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15 The Fish Pond. The two ladies dined alone. The telephone message was from Edwin Harmar, who informed his wife that he had met a friend with whom he proposed to dine. When asked who the friend was, he told her that it was Rupert Earle, adding certain comments which were undoubtedly intended to reach her ear alone. The first part of the message she passed on to her cousin, the latter part she kept to herself. That evening meal was not an exhilarating function. Had either lady ventured to follow the secret prompting of her heart, she would have suggested that they should have no formal meal at all, the other with alacrity have acquiesced. As it was, they sat down to a fairly elaborate repast. John Culver had always insisted on having a good dinner, of which they both ate practically nothing. The scant attention they paid to the several dishes was not flattering to the cook. Conversation was almost as much to seek as appetite. Mrs. Harmar made gallant efforts to talk about something, but Miss Graham was so unresponsive that the failure of her attempts was tragic. Such a cloud of gloom settled about the festive board that before the feast was more than halfway through, Mrs. Harmar, taking her courage with both hands, asked her companion if she wanted anything else, receiving her negative with an air of unmistakable relief. When the two ladies, having quitted the dining-room, were out in the hall, Mrs. Harmar said, with what in one so equable was something more than petulance, "'Upon my word, Elsie, you are beyond anything. You really are too awful. I'm going to bed, or at any rate I'm going to my room. I don't know when Edwin's coming in. And about you there is such an air of unutterable depression that, if I must have the blues, I may as well have them alone, if you don't mind.' Miss Graham did not seem to mind at all. Mrs. Harmar went upstairs. Soon after, Miss Graham went out. Going round to the stable-yard, which at that time of night was deserted, she unchained the great St. Bernard Boris. Passing a lead through his collar, she started off with him on what seemed a stroll round the grounds. It was a fine night. The stars hung in glistening masses in a cloudless sky. What breeze there was came from the south. If Boris wondered what was the cause of his being treated to such an unwanted constitutional like a gentleman, he asked no questions, but, without straining at the leash, kept stately pace at the lady's side. In Miss Graham's mind her cousin's words were rankling. She had not resented them because she knew how true it was that about her there was an air of unutterable depression. Yet the knowledge that her cousin had commented on it with so much frankness and so little sympathy hurt her none the less. Always it was with the storm and stress of life that she had been most familiar. True, there had been a time when she was the merest child in the land of her birth, where the sun shines oftener when she had known happiness which, looking back, seemed to have been unalloyed. But that time had gone with her childhood. Tragedy rather than comedy became her daily fare. Her parents never had been rich. Her father had never achieved material success. The struggle to do so had killed him. Before long his wife was with him in the same grave. At her unknown uncle's suggestion, Elsie had come to England. That was the greatest tragedy of all. At home, whatever there had not been, there was love. At Timberham, whatever there might be, there was not love. To the last moment of his life her uncle was beyond her comprehension, as it were, an inmate of an entirely different world to that in which she herself breathed and moved and had her being. He treated her as if she were a non-entity, allowing her to have no share in the household management, even to the extent of ordering an occasional meal. So far as he was concerned, he encouraged her to take no interest in anything. 
she was absolutely without occupation. In his presence, if he could help it, he would not even allow her to indulge in that last refuge of a woman, fancy work. Sometimes, when he was at home, he would not speak to her for days, not because he was offended or out of temper, but merely because it was his habit to say as little as he could to anyone. During his frequent absences, she never knew when he was going or when he would return, she was entirely alone. She herself had never slept a night away from Timberham since her arrival. Without seeming to assert himself, he had what amounted to an uncanny faculty of making those persons with whom he was brought in contact subservient to his even unexpressed will. She knew by instinct what he did not wish her to do, and that by the exercise of some power of which she was conscious, although it remained invisible, he would not let her do it. Apparently it had never occurred to him to suppose that beyond food, clothes, and a bed to sleep in, she could desire anything. He informed her, when she first came, that on the first of each month he would give her a sovereign for her personal expenses, that she was to get her clothes from certain tradesmen whom he named in the neighboring country town, that the bills were to be sent to him, that under no circumstances was their united total to exceed ten pounds for any one quarter. Situated as she was, the monthly pound proved ludicrously insufficient. She had to spend money in certain directions to keep herself from going mad. Try as she might, she could not help incurring small debts. She never spoke of them to her uncle. Whether he knew of them, she could never tell. She had an eerie feeling that he knew everything. One thing of flesh and blood did come into her life. Rupert Earle. Whether her uncle knew of him, that again she could not tell. Their acquaintance had been of the strangest kind. She had just met him at Clare's wedding, that day from which everything dated. He had been Edwin Harmar's best man. She had had her first real conversation with him nearly a year afterwards. They had spent the better part of a summer's afternoon together in the woods. Thenceforward she had realized that he might mean to her the world. Their intimate meetings had probably not numbered more than a dozen altogether. Each had left her with a firmer feeling that even for her the sun might shine. Then had come that amazing night which had begun so happily when she felt his arms about her, when her very soul had seemed to be leaping out from her to him, that night of the interrupted kiss. That first kiss she had ever had from any man, save her father, when, just as his lips touched hers, they had been drawn away again, leaving her trembling, leaning against the tree near which they had been standing because the solid ground seemed slipping from beneath her feet. Even now she had only to close her eyes to feel on her lips the touch of his, and whenever she did, again the solid ground seemed slipping from beneath her feet. As then, when she all at once stood still and shut her eyes and reeled, so that Boris supposed her to be tugging at his collar, there was in the grounds of Timberham a piece of water of some size, known as the fish-pond, which possibly dated from the times when pious gentlefolk deemed it a convenience to have at hand a supply of fish ready for such days, as the church appointed should be held as fasts. Miss Graham and Boris had come in sight of it. It was in shape an irregular oval. Nearly the whole way around it was fringed with trees. At the point at which they had approached they stood under a canopy of silver beeches, which left them as much in shadow as they could hardly have been visible to the keenest eyes. They were at the narrowest end, so that in front the silent, motionless face of the water stretched in ever-widening mystery. It was a tradition at Timberham that there never was a ripple on the fish-pond because the water was so deep. Elsie herself had noticed how, even in the strongest wind, its surface was scarcely ruffled. 
always it was calm and clear and dark. She had imagined that it was dark because it was so deep, that, in spite of its clearness, one could never see the bottom. But they told her that the darkness was in large measure owing to the fact that it lay rather in a hollow, to the shadows cast by the surrounding trees, and that she could not see the bottom because it was so clogged by weeds. She knew, however, of her own knowledge that it really was deep. More than once, standing on the edge, probing with a walking stick, she had been surprised to find how difficult it was to reach a stopping point. If, so near the bank, the bed was so far from the surface, it was reasonable to presume that in the center it was farther yet. From where she stood the ground went sloping up on the left. At about the highest part stood the summer-house of which the man had spoken that afternoon in the wood. She wondered how he had come to know of its existence. The lake was rather remote from the house. Many people who had been often in Timberham had never seen it, while the summer-house was so shut in by trees that only from one side could it be clearly seen. He had spoken of it as one might have done who knew it well. She had had a feeling about him that he was acquainted both with the house and its surroundings. Who could he be? Some jackal of her uncle's? She remembered once finding him closeted with an individual of much the same outward type as Mr. Fitzherbert. When afterwards she asked him with unusual courage who the person was, he told her with a grin that when he was not a burglar he was a bailiff, adding with the grin grown wider that there was not a man in England who employed more bailiffs than he did, since there was scarcely a day out of the annual three hundred and sixty-five on which he had not a man in possession of an Englishman's castle somewhere, Sundays and bank holidays included. Perhaps this fellow was in that sense an acquaintance of her uncle's. If he was, she was convinced that he was more burglar than bailiff. Since she could not swim, how easy it would be for her to drop into the quiet black water and so end everything. Before very long, it quite probably might come to something of the kind. Beyond a doubt, in case of a certain eventuality, it would be the better ending of the two. Although her years had not yet numbered twenty-three, and the blood of healthy youth ran riot in her veins, and she had even more than her share of those physical attributes which make of a woman a prize to be greatly desired by men, she knew that before she had reached the beginning all for her was finished, so that her heart cried out within her in exceeding bitterness because of the fate which had befallen her. Nonetheless, her sense of humor was sufficiently to the front to make her conscious that, if she did try dropping into the water at that particular moment, Boris would undoubtedly try his very best to fish her out again. With Boris still on the lead, she turned to the left, along the path which sloped upwards, holding herself very straight as she always did. In her black gown, whose skirt she allowed to trail behind her, with her head uncovered, holding the dog with her right hand, the pair moved slowly onward, as if their sole purpose was to enjoy the softness and the sweetness of the night. Presently an odor reached her nostrils which had nothing to do with the perfume of the trees and flowers and of the night. It was the odor of some bad tobacco which was being smoked in a foul pipe. Apparently Boris smelt it at the same moment she did. With it possibly he smelt something else as well, something which was not to his taste, because he began to strain slightly at his lead and to growl. With a slight movement of her wrist she drew him back. Boris, be still. The words were only whispered, but they were enough for the dog. He came silently into step again at her side, though with a head a little raised, eyes looking straight forward, every sense on the alert. The summer house loomed like a darker shadow twenty or thirty yards in front of them. When it was within a dozen feet, Miss Graham stood still. The dog stopped too. 
The smell of tobacco had grown stronger, but beyond that there was nothing to show that anything human was close at hand. Nothing, at least, which would have made it evident to the girl's imperfect senses. The dog was wiser. His keener vision, penetrating the darkness, perceived that on the seat at the back of the wooden structure a man was lolling, a man, his instinct told him, of the type he particularly disliked. His hair bristled, he showed his teeth, it was with an effort he kept himself from growling. But he felt the lady's hand tighten on the lead. Something told him she would rather he was quiet. So the girl and Boris stood still, and for some seconds nothing happened, until a voice proceeding from the darkness proclaimed the fact that its owner liked the dog as little as the dog liked him. "'What have you brought that great brute with you for? I can't abide dogs, and never could. You aren't afraid, are you?' In the darkness the girl smiled for the first time that night. "'I'm not at all afraid, thank you. But judging from your voice, I should say that you were a little nervous.' "'It's that great beast of a dog. I hate him, and they know it. I never met a dog yet whose throat I wouldn't like to slit. If I had my way, I'd have more than half of them got rid of tomorrow, and what was left I'd make their owners keep chained up. Dangerous animals, I call them. They didn't ought to be allowed out in public places. This is not a public place. That don't make no difference. Don't you let that dog come near me.' I told you that I should have dogs let loose to clear the premises of tramps. Tramps are animals to which Boris has a great objection. You have no idea how good he is at getting rid of them. By God, if you let that brute come near me, I'll do for him as sure as you're alive. The man had taken something from his pocket, which he was holding out in front of him. Something which was visible to the dog, but not to the lady. Straining at the lead, Boris gave an angry growl. If you let him loose, I'll shoot. There was no resemblance to a whisper about the man's voice then. It came through the darkness almost as if he screamed. Elsie gripped the lead with both hands. She did not raise her voice, but in an instant it was aflame with anger. You coward! You unutterable cur! You apology for a man! You dare to talk of shooting Boris, such a thing as you! It's his duty to keep the place clear of such vermin as you! If I bid him to do his duty and you dare molest him in the execution of his duty, as you use him I'll use you and ten times worse. This shall be the sorriest night you've ever known. Come out of there, into the open where I can see you. Must we come in and fetch you out? Then we'll see if you will shoot us both. The scream was changed to something very like a whine. I never did meet the likes of you, I really never did. I've no wish to make myself disagreeable, far from it. And I certainly don't want to start shooting anything. Why should I? Only it so happens that if there's one thing on earth which I can't abide, it is dogs, especially big ones, like that one you've got there. I can't help it. I was born that way. All I ask is that you'll promise not to let go of the dog, and that you'll go a little farther back with him, and I'll come out with pleasure." I've no wish to stop in here. All I really want is that there should be no unpleasantness. No one could say fairer than that. There was silence, as if the girl were considering the unseen speaker's words. Then she laughed softly. Though she did not know it, at the sound of her laughter the man within, starting on the seat, seemed to try to draw himself closer to the summer-house wall. Stooping slightly, she addressed the dog, but scarcely in terms which were calculated to reassure the listener. Come, Boris, do you hear that creature? 
He's afraid of you. Creatures of his sort always are afraid of dogs. When a man's afraid of a dog, you may be sure there's not much good in him. Decent people never are afraid of dogs. You know that, don't you, Boris? Let's humor the creature and go what he calls a little farther back, and then see if he will dare to come out where we can see him. She moved back with Boris perhaps a dozen feet. Is that far enough? she asked. It is if you promise not to let go of him. So long as you don't let go of him, everything will be perfectly all right. Only to avoid unpleasantness, I'd like you to promise. While you behave yourself as well as it is in you to behave, I'm not likely to lose the dog, but I'll make you no definite promise. Only if you don't come out, we'll fetch you, the two of us. Her words were followed by another interval of silence, as if the man within the summer-house were finding them rather more ambiguous than he quite liked. Then, apparently, he gained some fragments of what stood to him for courage. With steps which were obviously not so eager as they might have been, he came sufficiently far out to enable her at least to get a glimpse of him. As he came, she was conscious that Boris would have liked to growl. With a movement of the hand, she checked him. CHAPTER Sixteen. Splash. He still retained a pipe between his lips, and in his right hand was something to which he made haste to call attention. This is a revolver, this is, and every chamber is charged. Every man's entitled to defend himself, and if you set that dog at me, I shall use it to defend myself against him, be the consequences what they may. But so long as you keep hold of him, you'll find that there's no more harm about this pop-gun than if it was a toy. When he ceased, there was still another interval before she answered. When she did, her tone was curt. She addressed him much more contemptuously than she had done her dog. "'I hear what you say. What I want to know is why you are here at all.' "'I'm here because I want to come to that little understanding with you of which I spoke this afternoon. I've been thinking things over since then, and you'll find me both ready and willing. On what subject is it possible that I could come to an understanding with you?' If you don't know, I'm sure I don't. If you like, we'll leave it at that. In that case, I'm sorry I troubled you, and without keeping you a moment longer, I'll take myself right off. Mark you, if I do, I'll go straight to Inspector Falcon, and don't you make any mistake about it. There was a momentary hesitation before she spoke again. When she did, something had happened in her voice. Pray, what would you say to Inspector Falcon? I should tell him that on a certain night I was outside a certain window of a certain house. There was someone in the room on the other side of the window. But it was so dark that I should never have made out that it was a young lady, let alone what young lady, if it hadn't been that an old gentleman came into the room with a lighted lamp in his hand. Don't go on. Stop. If I once begin, Inspector Falcon won't let me stop. That's what I want you to understand. The girl seemed to be endeavoring to get the better of her feelings sufficiently to enable her to speak. If you saw what took place, you know that it was all an accident. That may be. On the other hand, it mayn't. It's a point on which, personally, I shouldn't like to pass an opinion. In matters of that sort, the law takes its own view of what is an accident and what isn't, as I happen to know. You know that I scarcely touched him. Pardon me, but that's just what I do not know. I'll grant that you mayn't have thought that you hit hard. But at such times, one's apt to hit harder than one thinks, even if the hitter's feminine, as again I happen to know. 
I can only tell you that my feeling was that I'd never seen a hearty young woman hit a heartier blow. I thanked my stars that it wasn't me you were hitting. It's dead sure you'd have laid me out as dead as mutton. It's not true. You know that it's not true. I lay I'm as good a judge of what'll kill a man as you are, and I take my affidavit that that whack you gave him would have killed me or any other man. What did the doctor say? Isn't it in evidence? The proof of the pudding's in the eating. But that's just what I don't understand. How he can have had so dreadful a wound when I, I know I scarcely touched him. Excuse me, but as a man who's had a good deal of experience of a sort, let me tell you that when a party, especially one who's fresh at the game, is caught, as that old gentleman caught you. I wasn't caught. What do you mean by caught? Well, you had a cash-box in your hand, what had been broken, and I don't fancy that there was much left in it. Do you suppose that I'd broken it open, or that I'd taken anything out of it? Don't let's start supposing. I don't want to suppose anything. Supposing's not evidence. Let's stick to what is. What I was going to say is this. Please don't interrupt. When a person's discovered in a delicate situation, like you were, Let's put it that way. He's apt to lose his head. And if it's a lady, she'll probably lose it more than ever, to such an extent that he won't know what he is doing. And when he finds out afterwards what he's done, he won't believe it. Let me tell you a story what's as true as gospel, just to show you what I mean. A party was once a-burgling a house. The owner came into the room and caught him. That party hit the owner and did a bunk. He didn't know till afterwards that he'd hit him with a corner of a paperweight that weighed about four pounds, and smashed his head to a pulp. And he couldn't hardly believe it when he did know. He thought that with something what weighed nothing at all he'd given him a touch that was as light as a feather. So there you are. See what I mean? I hear what you say, but you will not persuade me against the evidence of my own senses. What were you doing outside that window? There you are again. I'd come on business, that was what I was doing there, but when I saw you do what you did, that was enough for me. I didn't want to be mixed up in a job of that sort. I cut and run empty-handed as I came. My gosh, didn't you hit that old gent a downer? It gave me the creepy crawls to see it. That's false, you know that's false. If you really are in earnest, it only shows how a looker-on does see most of the game. Then blow me if I didn't find out afterwards that some other gents had done what I was going to do before I came. So, all things considered, it was just as well I did go. One of them seems to have hid part of his little lot in a tree, as Miss Scarlet knows, to say nothing of you. Ignoring the reference, Elsie asked a question. What was that understanding which you spoke of? Taking the pipe from his mouth, he knocked out the ashes against the butt of his revolver. It's this way. Not only I don't want to give you away, I don't want to give anyone away. I never do. It goes against the grain. When blokes start giving each other away, no one ever knows when it's going to stop. And in your case, giving you away would be specially against the grain. Because when they got me in the witness box, some inquisitive lawyer would be sure to ask me what you did. What I was doing outside that window. And with a history like mine, conclusions might be drawn which would be highly inconvenient to me. No, thank you. The longer I keep out of the witness box, the better I'm pleased. I own it. 
Perfect candor always was a weakness of mine. He blew through the stem of his pipe as if to make sure that it was clear. On the other hand, what I do want is a fresh start. The chance of making a fresh start in life in a country where every blasted copper don't treat me as if he'd handled me before and expected soon to handle me again. The United States of America. That's the place for a man like me, where talents like mine will be properly appreciated. I've got a friend in Colorado who's getting on like a house afire, who'd be only too glad to have me for a partner, if I'd only got the pieces to buy a share in his business. A nice, snug little business it is. Five hundred pounds is all that would be wanted. Five hundred sovereigns. You give me them and I'll leave England forever. I'll change my name, and I'll not only be dead to you, but I'll be as if I'd never lived. I'll make an honest living. So that if ever I do marry, I'll bring to my wife an honest name, one of which our children need never be ashamed. That's what I mean by coming to an understanding, see? And where do you suppose I'm to get five hundred pounds from, when I haven't five hundred pence? Tell that for a tale. You can get that little lot for the asking. You've only got to tip the wink to one of the old gent's lawyers, and he'll give it to you right away. When will you want the money? Let's see. This is Tuesday. I shall want thirty or forty pounds tomorrow, and the rest on Friday. And on Saturday I'll start for America, and I swear to you I'll never return. I can neither give you five hundred pounds by Friday, nor thirty or forty pounds tomorrow. That being so, I am to take it that you propose to go with your tail to Inspector Falcon. Now, don't let's talk like that. Don't let's do it. As I said, you've only got to ask for the money, and you'll get it. If I were to give you the money, I doubt if you'd go to America, and I'm sure you wouldn't make a fresh start. You're not that kind of creature. You'd spend the money. Then you'd come to me for more, taking it for granted that so long as I had some or could get any, I'd give it to you. For a nice young lady like you, there's a low opinion of human nature to have. Whatever makes you say a thing like that of me? All I ask is that if I do you a good turn, you'll do me another. You don't know how difficult it is for a chap like me to get a chance of making a fresh start, or you wouldn't be so cruel hard. Perhaps so. At any rate, we have come to that understanding of which you spoke, so now be so good as to take yourself off. But have we come to an understanding? Have we? Is there anything you wish to add to make it clearer? What I want to know is, are you going to give me that money or aren't you? I understand what you want. What I want is that you should understand that I refuse to say either yes or no. Then what is your game? What are you driving at? Is it time to get the cash you want? I want you to go quickly. Oh, I'll go fast enough even for you to Inspector Falcon. They mayn't hang you. Perhaps you're counting on that but they'll give you penal servitude for life, as sure as you're standing there. Go, please. Before I do, we will come to an understanding. Now you shall have it. You treat me as if I was dirt, as if you were something altogether superior. Why, by God, my girl, I know you through and through. I saw you cramming the papers into the pockets of your dressing gown. I saw you emptying the cash box of all that was in it. Low-down robbery was what you were after. And when the old gent came in and caught you, if ever there was murder on a face, it was on yours. You saw that the only chance to keep him quiet was to kill him, and you meant to kill him. 
By God, I believe you were glad to have a chance of doing it. I'll swear that before a judge and jury. Don't you come trying to play no games with that dog. In his growing excitement, he had come closer to her. Boris, resenting his approach, probably affected also by his sudden agitation, began to growl. Retreating more precipitately than he had advanced, he continued to hurl denunciation at Elsie, who remained motionless. And my girl, I'll hang you. Yes, I will. Don't you make any error. When I tell them the whole truth in a court of justice, as I will do, you'll be shown as much mercy as you showed that old man. You won't find me so easy to silence. You keep a tight hold of that dog. If you think you can use him to bully me, I'll put a bullet into him. By God, I will. I've warned you. As is not infrequently the case where dogs are concerned, the man's excitement reacted on the animal. Possibly, Boris supposed that the way in which the man had all at once raised his voice meant mischief, as in fact it did. He probably saw in this sudden vocal violence danger to Elsie. He began to leap and strain at the lead, growling defiance. He broke loose. The man stepped back. The dog dashed forward. The man raised his revolver and fired. Boris sprang at him with a yelp of rage. The man went backwards over the bank and dropped with a splash into the lake below. End of chapters 15 and 16